0: Pacific Southwest Airlines Flight 182 is landing in San Diego when it falls from the sky. What caused this flight to crash in the suburbs of San Diego? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick.
1: I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. Today we have... Kaylin. Hey! Hey. Welcome back.
0: back. Yay, it's so good to be back. This one's been planned for a while for a reason. We'll get there, but yeah, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Housekeeping. Housekeeping.
1: We have a new patron, or two new
2: patrons. I think one of them's a returning listener.
0: Yes, one is a returning listener, and the other one is a new listener. Welcome to Melissa.
2: Hello. Hello, and welcome back to...
1: Megan. Megan. Hey, Megan. Hey, I think you messaged us that you were coming back. Yes,
0: yes, they did. We're
1: like, okay, thank you. We appreciate it. Thanks. Listener stories. Send us those, please. Thank you. Yes, that. 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 Thank you. Uh, The listener episode for February should have come out by now. If you want ducks, you can get ducks. All right. I think that's it. Okay. So what are we covering today, Nick?
0: Today we are covering PSA Flight 182.
2: Thank you to our patron, Mike, for recommending this, as well as Kalen. And this will be coming out on Kalen's birthday. So happy birthday. Happy birthday. Yay.
0: Here's, here's <laughs> a birthday episode that involves a crash. There's a yeah. lot more than that. And, <laughs> and just so you know, he he's well aware of this accident. He's not in the dark in this by any means. So he's actually participating with us today. Hmm? So it's good. Everybody's relatively familiar with what's actually going on in this episode. Um, to some extent. I know you don't know exactly... What happened, but everybody knows i know
1: the big part of it yes but i don't know why
0: yes that's the that's thing.
1: your guys's job not mine we'll get there
0: <laughs> so this occurred on september 25th of 1978 this was a boeing 727 200 with the tail number november 533 papa sierra PSA was a really popular airline in Southern California in particular, but also just along the West Coast and the Western United States in general.
2: They were based at San Diego and had a very, very good safety record.
0: They were one of the airlines that fed up to what is now the monster of American Airlines. Mm -hmm. So if you look around, actually, there are pictures of they have a... A retro scheme. They were eaten by another airline that was eaten by another airline that was eventually eaten by American Airlines. (laughs) So American has all these retro colors of all the airlines that have at one point or or another been part of their legacy, basically.
2: Nom, nom, nom.
0: And PSA is one of them. This was a flight from Sacramento, California to Los Angeles to San Diego. Yes, they're all quite short hops. So this is not a long journey. Captain for today's flight was James McFerrin. He was 42 years old he had 14,382 hours total of which 10,482 hours were on the 727 so experienced all around especially on the 727. The first officer was Robert Fox. He was 40 he was 38 years old. He had 10,049 hours total of which 5800 hours were on the 727 so also pretty experienced.
2: It's a good looking crew.
0: Yeah. To add to that The flight engineer is Martin Wayne. He was 44 years old. He had 10,800 hours total, of which 6,587 hours were on the 727. So all of them were really experienced on the 727. They were all very, very familiar with this airplane. The flight from Sacramento to LA was uneventful. The flight then departed LAX at 8.34 a.m. with 128 passengers and 7 crew bound for San Diego. The first officer was to be the pilot flying, while the captain was to be the pilot monitoring for this leg. Short leg, so you don't get a lot of pilot and command time, but hey, that's okay. At 8.53 a.m. and 19 seconds, the flight made contact with the San Diego Approach Controller while flying at 11,000 feet. So, mind you, this is not long after they took off, just under 20 minutes. The air traffic controller cleared them to descend to 7,000 feet. 8.57 a.m., the flight informed the air traffic controller that they were descending through 9,500 feet, for the 7,000 feet, and that they had the airport in sight. It's a nice day. They're still quite a distance away, but they could see the airport.
2: Visibility is fantastic this day.
0: Yep. The air traffic controller then cleared the flight to make a visual approach to runway 27. So this involves no instruments at all. This is literally, you can make the visual approach, I mean, using your standard instruments, your attitude, your altitude, your speed. But you're not using any kind of instrument approach. You're not using any kind of aid to get you to the runway because it's such a nice day.
2: Is this the runway that notoriously you have to approach kind of steep because of terrain?
3: Yep. Yep. That's the one. Yep. The one if you live on or if you are in a hill there, you are watching the planes come down what seems like 50 feet away. Oh, yeah. Sounds
2: like a dream to Nick.
3: Yes. (laughs) I would. Sit, I I had a friend that actually was in a house that lived on that hill, and I that would cool. go over just to be in the backyard, and it was the closest observing I ever got. Yeah, and that's
0: that's really cool. It's a cool cool spot, and if you've ever flown in there, you probably know what we're talking about. But there's yeah, they fly really low over this hill. So, but mind you, they're coming in from out over the ocean. That's just kind of the fastest way to get from LA to San Diego without having to navigate awful airspace. Yeah. So. It's easier for them to shoot out over the ocean, go straight down the coast, and come right back in over San Diego. So they're coming in from the west over the ocean. So they were cleared for the visual approach on runway 27, and the flight crew acknowledged that. The weather was good, and visibility was over 10 nautical miles. 10 nautical miles is kind of a, that, in aviation, we use it as basically...
2: Great visibility.
0: Yeah, phenomenal visibility. That's that's where they top out when they say what visibility is. is usually 10 nautical miles, but that actually can mean unlimited. It can mean beyond 10 nautical miles. Here in Colorado, we're pretty used to that, but in other places in the world, that actually can be pretty rare. 8.59 a.m. and 28 seconds, the air traffic controller informed the flight that there was traffic at their 12 o'clock and one mile northbound. The flight reported that they were looking for the traffic.
1: So it's right in front of them?
0: Yes. Dead in front of them. Okay. Three miles ahead. 8.59 a.m. and 39 seconds. So now we're talking basically 11 seconds later. The air traffic controller informed the flight, additional traffic's 12 o'clock, three miles, just north of the field, northeastbound. A Cessna 172 climbing VFR out of 1,400. There's a lot to think about, but it's basically dead in front of them. The airplane is heading northeastbound, and they're currently heading eastbound. It's a Cessna 172.
2: Which is a small, little, single-propeller. Single-engine
0: airplane. And they're currently under visual flight rules, so they don't have any kind of flight plan, no instrument flight plan or anything, and that they're climbing out of 1,400 feet, is what out of 1,400 means. 8.59 a.m. and 50 seconds, the first officer responded, okay, we've got the other 12. This is kind of a confusing statement, but because the air traffic controller just told them about another airplane as traffic to them, also at their 12 o'clock, what the first officer is saying, okay, we have the first one you told me about at our 12 o'clock.
1: That's what I was going to ask. They have more than one plane at their 12 o'clock.
0: Correct. Okay. 9 a.m. and 15 seconds, the air traffic controller informed the flight that the traffic was now 12 o'clock, three miles Out of 1,700, quote-unquote. 9 a.m. and 22 seconds. The captain responded, traffic in sight. That's what you would say as a pilot. Once you see the airplane, that is is the correct response. A second later, the air traffic controller instructed the flight to, quote, maintain visual separation, end quote, and to contact the tower controller at San Diego.
2: Or at Lindbergh.
0: Yes, Lindbergh Field. 9 a.m. and 34 seconds. The flight contacted the tower controller, and the air traffic controller acknowledged and informed them that there was, quote, traffic 12 o'clock, one mile, a Cessna, end quote. 9 a.m. and 41 seconds, the first officer called for flaps five degrees. The captain asked, quote, is that the one we're looking at? End quote. And the first officer responded, yeah, but I don't see him now. 9 a.m. and 44 seconds, so three seconds later. The flight told the air traffic controller, okay, we had it there a minute ago. Six seconds later, they again spoke to the air traffic controller. I think he's passing off to our right, quote unquote. The air traffic controller acknowledged, in the cockpit, the flight crew continued to discuss the location of this Mysterious Cessna, 9 a.m. and 52 seconds. The captain stated, quote, "He was right over there a minute ago." Quote, and the first officer responded, "Yeah." The captain informed the air traffic controller that they were going to extend their downwind leg, so they're currently flying parallel to the runway, the opposite direction of landing. Down there, so they're on the downwind, and they're just telling the air traffic controller, "We're going to fly out a little, a bit, little further bit further than intended before, before we turn around." Yeah, for, do our U-turn basically yeah, for base. a.m. and 11 seconds. The first officer asked, are we clear of the Cessna? To which the flight engineer responded, supposed to be. And the captain responded, I guess. Plus a deadheading pilot, who was in the forward jump seat, also in the cockpit, responded, I hope.
2: Yeah. This is all real foreshadowing. There is
0: a lot of just great answers in that cockpit. Just just real confidence.
2: (laughs) Total confidence.
0: Everything from supposed to be to I guess to I hope. (laughs)
2: <laughs> if at so, this point you haven't figured out what's about to happen I'm sure
0: you're well aware
1: Here's the deal though, if you've never been in an airplane Trying to look for another airplane crap, It is it's extremely hard. hard They are so tiny anything, Especially like
2: a 172 yeah. And anything
0: You know, if it's within your Like basically a thousand above To anything below you It's going to be blending in with the ground You know, you don't think that it's going to be But it is and that is, that can be
3: really scary. Well, and it was three miles away when they first called it out, right? Yeah. So it's a tiny little dot, tiny little dot, three it's, miles yep. away. dot. Yes.
2: Yeah. And I'll talk more about that later, because yes. it's yep. relevant.
0: It is. We'll get there. one a.m. and 21 seconds, the captain stated, Oh, yeah, before we turned downwind, I saw him about one o'clock, probably behind us now. 9.01 a.m. and 31 seconds, the first officer called for the gear to be extended. 9 1 a.m. and 38 seconds, the first officer stated, there's one underneath, quote-unquote. A second later, he stated, quote, I was looking at the inbound there, end quote. Now we're going to transition a little bit. I'm going to leave that one off there, but we'll come back, because that's where things start to get crazy. Meanwhile, the Cessna. Hmm.
1: This mysterious Cessna.
0: Yes. All the while, the Cessna 172, November 7711 Golf, belonging to the Gibbs Flight Center, was being flown by two licensed pilots. Martin Casey, Jr., was 32 years old, who had an instructor rating and a total of 5,137 hours. Quite a bit, actually, for for an instructor, yeah. David Boswell was 35 years old, and he was a U.S. Marine Corps sergeant who had a commercial rating and 407 hours total, so he was also actually relatively experienced.
2: I have questions.
0: Well, we'll get there. (laughs) Martin is in the right seat instructing David on his instrument rating, which he did Uh not have.
2: I thought you had to have an instrument rating to get a commercial rating. You do not. Okay.
0: You can do either one in either order. Gotcha. But you can't do. You
2: usually do instrument first? Yeah,
0: these days it's pretty common to do instrument first. Because in order to get hired by anybody to do any kind of
1: commercial commercial flying, like
0: where you actually make money, whatever it be, medical, any kind of anything, charter, you know, whatever it be, generally you want to have an instrument rating. So he's trying to get that out of the way. They had departed Montgomery Field in California at 8.16 a.m. They were flying VFR with no flight plan, as it was just a simple training flight. They had flown over to Lindbergh Field, or San Diego, to perform several practice approaches. They flew two practice ILS, or Instrument Landing System, approaches to Runway 9.
2: Which at the time was the only runway equipped with ILS, I believe.
0: Yes. It's the opposite end of the active runway, which was 27, because it's the only runway in San Diego to this day Hmm. still.
2: But that being said, that didn't mean that he was landing on runway nine. Correct. They were only doing approaches.
0: And this is normal. So when you do practice approaches, when you request practice approaches from air traffic control, their understanding is when you say we would like to do a practice approach is that you're going to do the approach following all of this. You're going to get down to what is considered, quote unquote, minimums. And then you're going to go around. So you're going to end the approach. And that's it. That's what a practice approach is. You don't actually land on the runway unless you want to do a full stop practice. But that's a different situation. 8.57 a.m., the second practice approach was completed, and they ended the approach climbing out to the northeast. So like we said, they went around. They didn't do the landing. So they're climbing out to the northeast now. 8.59 a.m. In one second, the tower air traffic controller cleared the flight to maintain VFR and to contact the approach controller. So now they're changing control. 8.59 a.m. and 50 seconds. The Cessna contacted the approach control, stating that they were at 1,500 feet heading northeastbound. The approach controller confirmed radar contact and instructed them to maintain VFR flight at or below 3,500 feet and to fly a heading of 070, so 70 degrees, a little off of directly east. They acknowledged and repeated the instructions back correctly to the air traffic controller. 9 a.m. and 31 seconds, the controller advised the Cessna that there was, quote, traffic at 6 o'clock, 2 miles, eastbound. A PSA jet inbound to Lindbergh, out of 3200. Has you in sight, end quote. The Cessna acknowledged the traffic call. Now we're going to go back to where things get crazy, and we're going to put these two together. I know you know what's coming next. It shouldn't really be a surprise at this point. 9.01 a.m. and 28 seconds, a conflict warning began sounding for the Approach traffic controller, warning that the two aircraft were on crossing paths, so they were dangerously close. 9.01 a.m. and 47 seconds, so now we've had almost 20 seconds. The Approach controller informed the Cessna again, quote, Traffic in your vicinity, a PSA jet has you in sight. He's descending for Lindbergh, end quote. There was no response from the Cessna, nor would there be one. A witness on the ground at that time saw both aircraft heading in an easterly direction. The PSA jet was overtaking the Cessna, of course. Much bigger, much faster. Yes. 9.01 a.m. and 47 seconds. The witness saw the PSA jet bank slightly to the right as the Cessna nosed up slightly, at which time the two aircraft collided, the Cessna striking the right wing of the 727. The Cessna immediately broke up and exploded in midair. Oh. Pieces of the 727 broke off and fell from the plane. The 727 began a shallow right turn with vapor trailing from the right wing. A bright orange fire then broke out on the right wing that continued to grow in intensity as the aircraft descended. The nose pitched down and the right wing rolled down to a very dramatic angle as it aimed toward a residential area. Several pictures were taken at that time that became hauntingly famous as they showed the last dramatic moments of the 727 before it impacted the ground. The Cessna fell in several pieces that scattered over the residential areas below. The 727 struck houses just three nautical miles from the airfield. The aircraft destroyed 22 houses in total, causing many areas of fire. All 135 on board the 727, along with the two pilots on board the Cessna and seven persons on the ground, perished in the accident. An additional nine persons on the ground were injured as well.
1: I have a question. Yes. And I'm sure we'll get into this. Yes. But if they were so close, Mm -hmm. how did the Cessna not see the 27?
2: That's a question I can actually answer right now, though I will get into it. So he was instrument training. Right. There is a particular tool while you are instrument training during nice weather. So if you're instrument training, you can't be relying on the outside horizon or anything like that. So they have what's called the hood that you put on. So the only thing you can see are your instruments. You cannot see out the windows.
1: Did both of them have that on? No. So then, why did one of them
2: not say anything? You've been in a 172. Where's the wing? <gasps>
0: Above you. Correct. And also, what did they tell them about where the
2: traffic was? Behind oh. you? Six o'clock. Oh, I didn't hear that part. Yes. Flight 182 was overtaking. Well, I knew that. So it's behind them. I
1: thought they were going at each other. No.
0: They're not. They're they're... going the same direction.
2: But I
1: thought when the 27 got the traffic call, it was at 12 o'clock.
0: It was right in front of them, heading the same direction. Heading
2: the same direction.
1: Oh, I guess I didn't get that part.
0: And the bigger issue is that one was ascending and the other one was descending. Right. Well, that, yeah, I got. While going the same direction. Which is why the call that they were three nautical miles apart and then the call that they were one nautical mile apart... Normally, if they were crossing, that distance would be closed like that. But the time between those two calls was almost two minutes. So that's why. Because the 727 was going slower, but now they were also going the same direction. So the closing distance was a lot slower than it would have been if they been closing face-to-face.
1: But shouldn't the Cessna also have been looking for traffic
2: behind them?
0: That's a little hard to do. All they could really do was know that the traffic was there, and there's a really key thing that the air traffic controller did there
2: the 727 has you in sight.
0: He said that twice uh, to the Cessna.
2: That means it's not the Cessna's responsibility.
0: The Cessna is just being made aware that there is traffic near them, but that traffic has them in sight, so it shouldn't be a factor to them.
1: Yeah, you still should keep your eyes open though. I mean, yes, but I'll they
0: get probably into it. couldn't see it.
2: This investigation was performed by the NTSB. That it was. Who arrived on site 2 hours after the crash because they were in LA. Yep. Sounds about right. Really, there was one investigator in L.A. The rest all came from D.C., but she was there lickety-split. Yeah. And she was interviewed on the Mayday episode. Feel free to watch it. Up to you. It is not on Amazon Prime or slash Paramount Plus, for those of you who are wondering. She had already been informed that it was a mid-air collision. This was not ever a question at all. Right. People
0: saw it happen. There are two planes involved. That's why I didn't make it a question in the story. It's pretty obvious.
2: Both black boxes for the 727 were found and were sent out for analysis, and the 172 was not equipped with, nor was it required to be equipped with black boxes.
0: It's a 172. They still aren't.
1: Because it's usually like one person to two people flying, maybe. Yes. And it's a small airplane. Yeah. So
2: Brendan flies a 172. Mm Yeah. Yeah the four of us can't go it does not have a usable load enough no to carry all four of us
0: nope it has four seats
2: (laughs) it it can't even carry brendan nick and i like the only time that three people have gone in there is miranda and i and brendan
0: yeah i'm a little too heavy to be in there with anybody else
2: it it don't work so adding black boxes on top of that no thank
0: you with all the sensors and everything especially back then because it would have been a lot more weight back then
2: While waiting for access to the wreckage site after emergency and rescue crews were finished, investigators began with witness statements. Who saw what, when, and where? In the Mayday episode, one of the investigators said something that I really never considered before. Kids are better witnesses than adults. Which makes sense when you think about it. When asked about what happened, adults will throw in feelings or will doubt themselves about what they saw. Maybe it happened this way or maybe that way. Kids will just say exactly what they saw. Children they just, have no filters. They will just tell you how it
0: is. <laughs> they have no filters. I'm sure the two of you can know all about oh, that. Oh, yeah. No filters. <laughs> For reference, Kaylin is also a teacher. <laughs> Student
3: teaching currently, but a teacher. Just you know teacher. all about that. Yeah. Still teaching. Uh, Still very much teaching. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Kids will say, you you say, hey, tell me. Okay. They just start talking.
2: Yep. And that's exactly what happened here. (laughs) It wasn't, oh, I think, well, kids are like, nope, I saw that. It was going that way. (laughs) Yeah. But very few people actually saw the collision. Most just saw the fiery planes plummeting to the ground. And we also know that witness statements aren't necessarily the most reliable things. Right. However, multiple parties have photographic evidence of both the 727 and the 172. There's actually video footage of the 172 plummeting to the ground Mm -hmm. vertically. Yikes. There is, yep. It's not great. No. In the photographic evidence, the right wing of the 727 was found to have extensive damage with flaps and slats missing. Yep. And there was a fire coming out the trailing edge. This all made it fairly obvious that contact was made with the right side of the 727. Some say that it was unclear who ran into who, or who flew into who, rather. Investigators interview the air traffic controller. They had recently implemented an impending collision detection program. I couldn't find the name of the actual thing. It's something like that. Mm -hmm. So investigators asked if they had gotten an alarm indicating an impending collision. And they did, but they kind of ignored it. The controller notified their supervisor as soon as they got the alarm but they were getting around 13 erroneous warnings a day. Ooh. So they yeah, reached that's not great. they reached out to both aircraft to rewarn them about the other and then just moved on. Uh I don't like it. I hate mm. that. Maybe you great.
1: should look into why you're getting erroneous warnings.
2: At 8:59 and 30 seconds the approach controller started notifying flight 182 about the Cessna's proximity and did so 3 times and the Lindbergh tower local controller did so once. The crew indicated that they did not see the aircraft, but were looking for it. At 8.59 and 39 seconds, the approach controller advised of additional traffic and described the aircraft type, location, heading, and altitude. 11 seconds later, the first officer responded, okay, we've got that other 12. At 9 a.m. and 15 seconds, the approach controller again advised of the Cessna's position and altitude, but did not say the traffic, movement, direction, or type. Which is actually a violation of the requirements of air traffic controlling. Fun fact. Wait, to the Cessna? To the, the
0: to, no, to the jet.
2: Didn't say where the traffic was going and what type of traffic you're looking for. See, and these are that, pertinent things. That was
1: the thing that I was confused about, too. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Okay. So
3: even yes. you listening, you got confused. Now, yeah. Now the pilots are like, oh, hey, you're told, hey, okay, so here's this traffic. It's going this way. It's a Cessna. Great. We see it. And then the next time it's like, all right, there's traffic.
2: Brilliant. Great.
0: Thanks.
3: Yeah.
2: I don't Pretty much.
0: know. Is yeah, that, is that other traffic or? Right. It doesn't help.
2: Yeah. yeah. But the first officer responded, got him. And the captain said, traffic in sight. The approach controller cleared the flight to maintain visual separation and to contact Lindbergh Tower. This means that maintaining a safe distance from the 172 is the 727's responsibility. Yep. Yes, that I agree with. If you have traffic in sight, you told them you have traffic in
1: sight, it is your job to make sure you do not hit said traffic.
0: Yep. At that point, see and avoid is your job, and you have taken over the responsibility of... maintaining distance from that traffic
2: and it's pretty obvious to all parties involved that 172 can't do that right it's behind you
0: yes the one unfortunate thing about this though is that the cessna is the more maneuverable airplane by far by far because it's smaller yes it's just slow yeah
2: unfortunately radar data was not recorded at this control center so investigators couldn't just use it to determine how the two aircraft collided
1: that's unfortunate isn't it
2: So investigators spread out all the available data they had and used it to piece together the probable ground track plot using the FDR readout, the CVR, air traffic control transcripts, plot information from the L.A. Air Traffic Control Center, the 172's performance data, and seismological data, which means they basically tracked where the planes actually hit because it caused like a small blip on earthquake detecting stuff. sure. There's a specific
3: place. I don't know if it gets into your section where that was detected. It was detected at the science museum in Balboa Park. So uh, that's about one and a half miles away from where one of them went down. So Mm -hmm. it's just, it's a science museum. They got a bunch of stuff and it's like, oh, we had an earthquake here. No,
2: nope. it was just. Two planes crashing into each other, yep, and then into the ground,
3: and and the the they actually showed exactly when, so they know the time that each one went down,
2: which is yeah, that most is... of the vital data is knowing moment of impact with the ground. This is the
0: kind of stuff that blows my mind about these investigations: is how they just use the craziest resources and they find out everything.
3: See, I didn't know that they used it to figure that out. I knew that. Because that was what – I used to go to that science museum. It has the coolest exhibits. It's like this whole science playground. It's it's amazing. Yeah. And one of the things when I was younger, there was the whole thing that, hey, th- this device here was used to
0: yeah, detect the identify crash. the crashes. And that's crazy. That's crazy. But cool. Yeah. I mean, and cool and awful, but cool.
2: <laughs> to, se- to segue into my next point. They had to use it to take all of those pieces of data and sync them together because, yes, all of these have timestamps. But, I mean, you're trying to get timestamps within fractions of a second. You want that lined up. The FDR and CBR were synced to all the other data using identifiable aberrations on the FDR's altitude, airspeed, and heading, as well as the crunching sound on the CBR. Indicating impact. I'm so sorry. I've read that and I had to stop and walk away for a second. I was like, I need no. Nope.
0: That is what it said in the report.
2: Yep. The Crunch. crunching sound. From all of this data it was determined that the 172 was in front of the 727 and was approached from behind. How did the PSA crew not see the 172 clear in front of them? That's the big question. Well, was it clear? Investigators performed a visibility study using Boeing's measurements for sitting in the cockpit and investigators figured out the corresponding range of visibility. The 727-200 had built-in eye reference points, so they would set their seats accordingly to see everything they needed to see. They did a second set of calculations to determine what the pilots see if they lean forward, like five inches, in the alert position as though searching for an aircraft. In the relaxed position, the Cessna would have been in the middle of their windshield for 170 seconds till impact up to 90 seconds till impact and then it would have moved lower to above the windshield wipers but still visible moving to the alert position raised the cessna target on the windshield for even longer now i mentioned that the 727 had reference points for where to set your seat to see everything there are three balls in a triangle on the post between the two windshields and two of the balls would line up if you were sitting in the correct position this is still in place today if Mm -hmm. anyone's wondering
0: Mm -hmm. if you really want to see detail like if that doesn't make sense to you Just go look at a picture of it for one and two. just go look at like there's quick videos that show you how it works. It's really simple. There's a red dot and two white dots. Wherever you're sitting, you line up the red dot with the white dot opposite where you're sitting. It makes sure that every pilot is sitting in the right place for the right view every time.
2: However, federal and company regulations don't require crews to adjust their seats that way.
0: So there's a big issue.
2: In fact, the chief pilot of PSA said that he and other company pilots don't normally have their seat lined up like that because they can't move the rudder pedals or elevator column to their full stops and see the whole instrument panel. So as to maintain full use of controls and visibility of instruments, the seat was moved slightly aft and sometimes slightly downward.
1: Well, that seems like kind of a stupid thing to do. Why have that
0: apparatus
1: so they sit in the right place and then they can't reach the rotor pedals? I mean, yes. I mean, come on. I feel like that's pretty simple, right? Like, why not do both? I don't don't understand. Why not do both? If you're going to do one, why not do
2: the other one? Dude, I don't know. Also, yes.
1: Because, like, (laughs) that's like a safety problem. Like, no wonder they're not in the right spot.
2: So right. this cut down the amount of time that they could see the Cessna, obviously, since it was so low on their windshield that it was near the windshield wipers. If you lower your seat. Yeah, you can't see it for sure. Between 9 a.m. and 15 seconds and 9:01 and 21 seconds, the crew definitely saw an aircraft that they identified as a Cessna and air traffic control confirmed that the traffic was in sight. Later, two advisories to the 172 stated that a PSA jet has you in sight. At 9 a.m. and 38 seconds, Lindbergh Tower reached out to Flight 182 and advised of the Cessna one mile in front of them, but didn't advise as to the direction of the Cessna. The crew correctly thought it to be the same Cessna they had previously been advised of. Now for a longer quote, because it's so well written, I'm not going to try to mess with it. Quote, The conversation showed that after sighting the Cessna, the flight crew either dismissed it as no hazard or lost sight of it. This had happened before they received the tower's advisory. While they did inform the local controller initially that they had lost sight of the Cessna, the flight crew's subsequent transmissions convinced him that they had the Cessna in sight and that it was no longer a factor. He turned his attention to releasing departing traffic. Regardless of the reason, Flight 182's flight crew did not keep the Cessna in sight, and they did not convey this to the local controller clearly. The visibility study showed that when the tower's advisory was received, the Cessna would have been positioned at the bottom of both the captain's and first officer's windshields, just above the windshield wiper blades. If the pilot's eyes were positioned aft of or below the design eye reference points, the Cessna could have been masked by the 727's cockpit structure. Therefore, they could not see it unless they had leaned forward or raised their seats or both. Even had they done this, their ability to sight the Cessna would have been further complicated by other factors. The Cessna was now on virtually the same course as Flight 182, and apparent motion of the target would have been lost, making the target more difficult to discern. There would be a foreshortening of the Cessna's fuselage, which would have made the target smaller and more difficult to sight. And the target would have been viewed against the multicolor hues of the residential area beneath it, and the ratio of its color and the color of the ground would have been minimal. The cockpit conversation showed that the flight crew did not have the Cessna in sight, and that they thought it had passed behind or underneath them, end quote. So there's a couple of factors to talk about in there. So the first thing I kind of want to touch on is what they said about them flying in the same direction for a prolonged period of time. In so doing, normally you will catch things in either your peripheral or in your normal vision, if it is different than it was like a second ago, if it's moving. Yeah. Relative to the jet, the Cessna wasn't moving a whole lot on their windshield. No. It wasn't going as fast.
0: It wasn't going as fast, but it was moving still like
2: the a, gap between about them, half the speed. The gap between them was closing, but wasn't closing super fast. So the Cessna wasn't moving a whole lot on their windshield in their field of vision.
1: Was this before we had Bravo airspace? No. Okay, is there just not Bravo around that airport?
0: You can still fly in Bravo airspace as with a far permission. traffic with permission. Denver's just super strict about I
1: it. I know. That's why I'm asking. Because. They
0: were doing, I mean, mind you, they were flying in at Lindbergh as doing practice approaches. I mean, it's where they could do it.
1: I know. But even then, like, even here, you have to stay below a certain altitude. And
0: they were told to stay at or below 3,500 feet.
1: So. I don't that's, I mean, I realize the reason why I'm asking is because mm-hmm. one of them is ascending, the other is descending, and yep. when you have planes that are doing opposite motion in the same direction, they were technically both following instructions okay that they was, were that was my question is like
0: they were both following instructions. they were both where they were legally allowed to be. They were both where the air traffic controller had them, and the problem is is that now they were both talking to two different air traffic
3: controllers. Oh, and there's even more than that, though. Oh, yeah. I don't there's even touch that. on that. Yeah. So
2: let, let me finish some of my thoughts from that quote. Yeah. So Cess is not moving a whole lot in their field of vision, making it harder to spot out of the entire windshield a tiny dot, a tiny white dot. The other part of it is they're looking for this tiny white dot amidst basically a subdivision underneath them.
0: So it's blending in with the white yes. below.
2: Them. I, I know because I've
1: flown in oh, a yeah. plane with Brendan before. And it's it's hard. hard to see.
0: It is so hard. to He's spot like, can you things.
1: keep an eye out for that traffic? I'm like, I don't know where to look. Well, yeah. when you and, and he's I. Like, it's right there. It's like a
2: tiny black dot. I'm like, Jesus. A lot of times yeah. when you and I go flying with Brendan, we're out over the fields of Colorado, which, yes, we have fields. We're not entirely mountainous terrain. And even then, it's really hard to spot traffic. We're talking houses where it's literally a multicolored mosaic mm-hmm. and you're looking for a tiny white dot. Screw it. I'm I'm so not capable of that. <laughs> it is.
0: It's it can be scary, actually. It can be really scary looking for traffic like that.
2: Now, there's one aspect that the Mayday episode really touched on and wasn't really in the report a whole lot. So I'm going to mention it because somebody thought it was important and it wasn't the report. So the first thing they were able to listen to was the recording from ATC. And at one point, the flight crew of 182 said, it's passing off to our right. Something like that. I can't remember the exact quote. Yeah. But that makes it sound like you can still see it. It is passing off. You're watching it pass off to your right. So the controller, in a lot of ways, was justified in his actions because as far as he knew, flight 182 could still see the 172. When they got to the CVR recording, that is not what was said. I think it's passed off to our right, meaning it was no longer in sight. And that was not accurately conveyed to the controller through no fault of anyone, technically.
0: It was just he didn't understand that. He heard passing instead of passed. And even He's... the
2: even the investigators listening to the two recordings could hear the difference between passing and passed. It picked up differently. Mm-hmm. I don't think any of this has to do with the air traffic controllers. It does. It does. They are found as contributing factors. If
0: that had, if he had heard passed, they would have blamed it on him. Because then at that time, he should have known the PSA did not see the 172 and it should still be in front of him. And so at that time, that should have told the air traffic controller, I now have to help him find this traffic again.
1: Yes,
2: but. But
0: because he thought passing, this justified the air traffic controller.
2: And not continuing conflict resolution.
0: Because he thought that they saw it literally at that time passing to the right of them.
2: Yes. Well, there's like a lot
1: of stuff screwed up with that because the 27 should have kept it in their sight. They lost track of it once, which by the way, when you lose track of a tiny dot once, it's hard to find again. Yes, it is. So because they lost track of it. It was their
2: responsibility to make sure they knew where the traffic was. And they only reported once that they had lost it. They did not say ever again, dude, we can't see it.
0: Yeah.
1: So, I mean, yeah, the ATC controllers are contributing factors, but
2: they're not the reason it happened. No, and they're not found to be either. No, they're not. So now let's flip the tables for a little bit. Did the Cessna do anything to cause the accident? Yes. Yes. Just before impact, the Cessna was flying at a heading of 70 degrees and would have cleared the PSA flight by about 1,000 feet had they not deviated to the right of their prescribed heading. There is no apparent reasoning for this deviation. It wouldn't have been to try to see Flight 182, as they had already been told the flight had them in sight and they could intend have seen them because A it was a high wing aircraft that blocked out the PSA flight except for ten seconds of flight and B the one seventy two pilot was being instructed on instrument flight and was flying under the hood, as I mentioned. Regardless of the change of course, as the overtaking aircraft with visual contact, the seven twenty seven had the responsibility of maintaining separation and staying well clear of the one seventy two. We're gonna take a little brick break. Yes. Yep. And then we'll be back.
0: Or
3: at least I'm going to try to.
2: <laughs> I tasked him with this, what, a week ago? Yeah, it was oh. a
3: week ago. But I'm <laughs> kind of familiar with the flight. As I've shared, I grew up in San Diego, actually in the neighborhood of neighborhoods where these crashes happened. And I was born really <laughs> close to this time. And in fact, we had family friends that when this crash happened, lived approximately three blocks south of where the 27 crashed. Oh, wow. At the end of Nile Street. And... um And the 27 went down at the intersection of Dwight and Nile. So this is something like I've grown up knowing about because you see those famous pictures. Oh, hey, that one went down right over here. All right. So I've known about it for a long time. And it's been interesting reading about this because I always heard my mom talking about she was driving home from work and home was right there. And she was on the I-15 going southbound. And at that point, it's pointed directly at where the collision happened. And while she didn't see the collision, she saw the smoke cloud and she described it as a mushroom cloud. And yeah. so people so when in it the just area just happened. When people in the area saw a mushroom cloud in the middle of San Diego, so it was on the radio pretty quick. And they were reporting that it was only a mile away from the airport. Obviously, it was three. And so people who are around there definitely remember it. It's kind of, you know, a crash goes down in the middle of the city. It's really crazy just that it happened.
2: I distinctly forgot to mention that at the time, this was the worst aviation accident in U.S. history. At the time. Yes. Until? 191. 191.
0: Yeah. And that one's, knock on wood, we never topped that.
3: <laughs> well, this one would still be the worst one in California then. Yes. Yeah. So it's still that re- record-breaking. And one of the things, when getting into the report, they dismissed it, but there was the common discussion point that because it crashed right at the edge of a hill, Right next to the 805 freeway, people thought that the pilots had tried to divert the plane to land on 805 freeway instead of on any homes. And as we'll get into, they had probably not what happened. But that's what a lot of people thought. Like, they, you know, oh, those hero pilots, they tried really hard not to, you know, land it. Right. Not sure there was much control to be had. So
2: it was really hard to determine if they lost hydraulics. It was touched on in the wreckage section. I didn't really go that in depth because it wasn't really a factor. Right. There was evidence of fuel loss, hence the fire. They obviously had lost control surfaces on the right wing, already making it difficult. They're not that far from the ground.
0: Right. They were really close to the ground, the pictures show that the airplane's in a really dramatic attitude, which shows that they have no control over the airplane. And unfortunately, whether that be hydraulics or not, ultimately doesn't matter. They had no control. That's obvious in the pictures. And unfortunately, they were just close enough to the ground that it ended
3: very quickly. Yep. So, on the findings, I'm not going to go through every single one. Thank but... God. <laughs> <laughs> the... Actually, it's not as many in this one when I looked.
2: No, not, this not is the finding. This is before the NTSB felt they had to write down every little nitpicky detail.
3: Yes. Well, then again, the first finding is flight 182 was cleared for visual approach to runway 27 at Lindbergh Field. So they've given a whole finding to, oh, yeah, they cleared. They were cleared. Okay, uh, okay, great. We already know that. So that's why I'm like, I'm I'm not really getting into that. But here's one of the interesting things. I'm going to jump a finding real quick. The approach controller did not instruct Flight 182 to maintain 4,000 feet until clear of Montgomery Field Airport traffic in accordance with established procedures contained in Miramar order. NKY.206G. Basically, Miramar is a naval air base north of this area and one of the many different airfields operating in the same terminal service area. And when the 727 was going over, they were supposed to stay at 4,000 feet as long as they were in there. And when we mm-hmm. look at this chart, there's an overlap of these areas that the entire time these two planes were overlapping, they were in airspace where the 27 was not supposed to go below 4,000. Interesting. Had they not gone below 4,000, this wouldn't have happened. happened.
0: Right. And when you hear all the clearances, they were cleared for the visual approach, which at that point is kind of where discretion is left to the pilot. But yes, they should still be staying above that 4,000 feet. no, if you recall,
3: they were told to go to 3,500. They were told to go below the level. that. So already it's like, okay, the, the air traffic controller... Told, right. them, told them to go below a level where they should. So that's just kind of like, huh. That Sounds like out. it's
2: not black and white anymore. It's just shades of yeah. gray. Oh, like it's, it's
3: about to get grayer. Yeah. It's about to get grayer. So coming back up. So the Cessna was operating in the area where they were required to comply with the ATC instruction to maintain the 70 degree heading or tell the controller if they were unable to do so. And since we don't know why they moved, and obviously, they didn't tell them they were going to do it.
2: We'll never know why that happened.
3: So They didn't. The visibility study showed that the pilots could have seen the plane if they were sitting in an alert position and they could have seen it for a little longer. But as we discussed,
2: they didn't have their seat set
3: correctly. Right. This key finding right here, the issuance and acceptance of the maintained visual separation clearance made Flight 182 responsible. Mm -hmm. So that just jumps out like, yeah, they're responsible. Flight 182 lost sight of the Cessna and did not clearly inform controller of that fact, and I noticed in the transcript when you were talking about passing versus past, it says pass parentheses ed mm-hmm. right. Like it's still even that.
2: It's eh. a little contentious, but yeah. It, but I, I do want to point out this was never on the report. I If I hadn't watched the Mayday episode, I never would have brought it up. So I'm not sure yeah. how much stock investigators themselves really put into it, or if it was just an easy point to dramatize for. A docu-series. I think so,
0: yeah. I mean, it's in the history of flight as a one-sentence thing. At the bottom, it says, like, the air traffic controller heard passing and testified that he heard passing. That's basically it. That's all they touched on it. it well,
2: it's really not... How do, how do I put this? It's another nail in the coffin, but it's not the nail in the coffin. It's not the straw that broke the camel's back.
3: No. Right. And, and even in the finding where it mentions that, they said... They told the traffic controller they had passed or were passing the Cessna. Well, they only made the one statement. So even Mm -hmm. in the finding, they still weren't coming down on what was actually said. The traffic advisories issued to Flight 182 by the approach controller at 9 minutes and 15 seconds and by the local controller at 9 minutes and 38 seconds did not meet all the requirements of some handbook.
2: It's Mm. the air traffic controller handbook. And that's what I was mentioning of they didn't specify aircraft type of the traffic, nor the direction of the traffic.
3: Right. Yep. And then the approach controller received a conflict alert at 9.01 and 28 seconds. The conflict warning alerts the controller to the possibility that there is a conflict, that there's going to be something going on. But the approach controller took no action upon the receipt of the conflict alert because he believed that the Flight 182 had the Cessna in sight. So even though the alert came out, the controller... Didn't jump it on took that. no action. Right. And so the conflict alert procedures, in effect, did not require the controller to do anything because the maintained visual separation order had already been given. So basically, the procedures didn't require the controller to do anything else. As far as the procedures in place, the procedures were being followed, even if there were some other things not complying. Both aircraft were receiving stage two terminal radar services. And I really don't know what stage one versus stage two or three
1: haven't we talked about that before? Is that just flight a following
0: bit. a little bit uh yeah, I mean, what this means is that they are they are getting information from air traffic control to yeah help them through airspace basically and to make sure that they're not going to hit another airplane
2: so when when we were talking about the Kobe Bryant crash, the pilot was asked if he wanted flight following services, and he said no which basically means I'm flying through the airspace. I got it. I figured it like, don't worry about me. Right. Whereas in this instance, both aircraft were receiving notifications and advice and et cetera and so forth from ATC. It it
0: helps pilots, but it also does put some responsibility on the air traffic controllers because they are asked to help them get through airspace and avoid collisions and things like that. And in Southern California,
2: I definitely recommend it. I,
0: I don't know if I would ever fly without it. Because that is the busiest airspace in the world by far, and it is insane. Insane. There are so many airports everywhere from Ventura, Oxnard, all that, and Santa Clarita. Everything that's up there all the way down to the Mexico border, it's just insane. All of that part of Southern California is just insane. so many airports and so much traffic, so much airspace. I, I can't even fathom trying to fly in a straight line through any of it.
3: Proper stage two services were afforded both aircraft. So now that makes sense to me. So they were getting those updates and the, the services were being afforded them. Yep. Now this one, stage two terminal service does not require that either lateral or vertical traffic separation minimums be applied between IFR and participating VFR aircraft. However, the capability existed to provide this type of separation to flight 182. And the final finding... Boeing 727 probably was not controllable after the collision.
0: Yeah. And that, yeah, that's pretty obvious. The second to last one, what that really intends is that because the airplane's on an IFR, and this is why a lot of airports these days, and this has changed a bit, but this is why a lot of the commercial airports, a lot of the major airports, in-class rival airspace, for example, they don't usually let small airplanes, especially in VFR situations, fly into the airspace is because there is a much different set of minimums That IFR traffic, which is all of their arriving and departing commercial traffic, usually has to abide by. So the 727 should have been able to expect basically this minimum separation distance from any other traffic around it. However, in this situation, they were given a VFR approach. The Cessna was on a VFR flight. They were kind of it's 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 a really gray area, but they didn't need to basically abide by those IFR
3: minimums which probably explains why there is a probable cause that has a big X on it. Yes, it does. Literally like sharpied through. Right. But I can read through that. And I'm going to point out that it initially put 100% of the probable cause on the pilots of flight
0: 182.
3: Yeah. 100% of them. They they said that they were contributing to the accident, that there were traffic control procedures authorizing the controllers to do what they did. And then that was it. They didn't mention the Cessna. They didn't mention anything else in the original probable cause, and this is why it's interesting, because it caused one of the members of the board to write a six-page dissent.
1: This, oh, is not... this happens all the time. <laughs> yeah. There's one board member that goes, no, 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 no. I do not agree with the findings. I will need to write a dissent that is a minor, small dissertation on why I don't agree with your probable <laughs> yeah, cause. Yeah. <laughs>
3: And while I'm sure that usually happens, I, was, I found this interesting. I, I, I could tell that there was some of this inviting thing that's normal because some of the language was a little snarky. There was, yes. a, little bit of, there was a little bit of sass. Tends to be how it is. However, these six pages basically say the entirety of the report that the majority agreed to says something different than the probable cause. Yes. And then proceeds to call out specific paragraphs and statements throughout the report. To make this case, saying, why are we not talking about the Cessna? Why are we not talking about the fact that these procedures are not where we should be and that it should have been known? And right. so they wrote a seven point finding list that three of those findings did make it into the amended thing. But this person, Francis McAdams, really wanted.
2: I'm. That name sounds familiar and I feel like they've written a dissent before. Probably. <laughs> Shocker.
3: Usually if you descent once, you've probably descended multiple times.
2: Francis what now? Adams? Mick
3: Adams. Mick Adams. Francis H. Mick Adams. One of the things that I noticed more in this six page than anywhere else, though, was the potential of other planes. So mm-hmm. when we're talking about mm-hmm. the traffic, you know, McAdams starts bringing up that there was a lot of uncertainty about that.
2: He wrote a descent for Southern Airways Flight 242. Oh. Ah. And I'm pretty sure we read that one, too. Yep. Probably. Like That name is very familiar. All right, so
3: interesting to Great. The other traffic. So throughout the report, they tried to bring up, they they did all sorts of research to see, could there have been other planes, right? Could there have been other planes going in and out? Obviously, probably. Yes. Could <laughs> there have been other planes that they might have seen? And so when we're talking about the witness statements, there were conflicting witness statements.
2: As there always are.
3: And yeah. they ultimately got down to, there might have been a plane going north, might have been east, might have been northeast, might have been west. Well, they got
1: the traffic, two traffic alerts. So... Yes. that And that was what I was confused about when Nick was going through the story. Yeah. Because... They did get two alerts for traffic, Mm -hmm. which means there probably
0: was more than one aircraft in the area, period. And from the sound of it, the first officer had said that they had seen... Both.
1: Another, some
3: other traffic. The first one that was called out. Yes. 16 ground witnesses reported additional traffic in the area that could have been interpreted as this potential traffic. And while there were some other witness statements that kind of pointed to that, they never were able to pick which plane it could have been. There were three planes that they started working on that they really kind of narrowed down that maybe, but they couldn't be sure. Yeah. Well, McAdams also thinks that maybe could have been other traffic that they saw. Yeah. And so when we're talking about the gray area, McAdams really wanted them to implement better terminal service area procedures.
2: A, B, have that radar track recorded. Every other thing that we've ever touched on for the, I think, at least 98% of them, Mm -hmm. the radar has been recorded. Yeah. Yes. The fact that it wasn't in this instance was particularly inconvenient and arguably quite debilitating on this investigation. Yeah.
0: Being that the air traffic control system in the United States is entirely run by the FAA, these
3: days, I think it's all recorded. Thank God. Well, that would have solved this one line in McAdams' descent.
0: And in any case... That would have solved so much.
3: (laughs) We have flight radar these days with ADS-B. Yeah. ADS-B is pretty much recorded worldwide anyways. There was at least one of those aircraft that they're pretty sure was there that that was unknown and or unreported by ATC at the time. Interesting. Interesting. So there was at least a plane. Interesting. That nobody knows why. But they know it was there. So the resulting... Three years later, there was a petition by the ALPA... Yeah, the
2: Airline, airline Pilots, pilots Association. Association
3: knew it was the pilots because yep. the whole thing was put on all the pilots. And and so it's like, well, there's some other stuff. And like McAdams was, seemed really upset that the Cessna's heading change wasn't even called out as contributory. Yeah. Like you didn't even mention it. So, well, guess what? The 82 update. I'll read this paragraph. They updated it to state That the NTSB determines that the probable cause of this accident was the failure of the flight crew of Flight 182 to comply with the provisions of a maintained visual separation clearance, including the requirement to inform the controller when visual contact was lost. And the air traffic control procedures in effect, which authorized the controllers to use visual separation procedures in a terminal area environment when the capability was available to provide either lateral or vertical separation to either aircraft. So the update was, yeah, sure, it was Flight 182's responsibility. But also... But ATC could have done something different, either by having better procedures... Yes. Or just realizing, hey, we have this ability. Something's up. Let's do something.
0: Yes.
2: It's not even so much like the individual controller's fault. It's more of a systemic fault.
3: Right. Well, and and so one of the things in McAdams' report specifically describes a probable cause as an act or an omission of an act, which probably would have changed the, the result here. And... Clearly, that would have changed the result.
2: And I think by wording it the way they did and not making it the fault of an individual controller is uh, Pew Pew at the FAA, who is basically the boss of all air traffic controllers.
3: Yes. Fair. Fair. Contributing to the accident were, one, the failure of the controller to advise Flight 182 of the direction of movement of the Cessna, and two, the failure of the pilot of the Cessna to maintain his assigned heading and three, the improper resolution of the con- by the controller of the conflict alert. Yep. I Place think, the blame a little bit everywhere. Yeah.
1: Well, we talk about this all the time. It's the perfect storm, right? It is. If, yeah, if the absolutely. Cessna hadn't changed their heading just that little bit, if the 182 had kept their visual reference, if ATC helped a little bit more, yeah, it wouldn't have happened.
0: Right. The way this airspace is handled in San Diego now, I'm sure, is a lot more strict <laughs> than it was before. So, this is probably all kind of not a situation that could reoccur in San Diego. I would sure hope not.
1: Who's to say it couldn't? I mean, it hasn't happened... Again, right in hey, San Diego airspace.
2: Hey, you guys who do instrument training in the San Diego area, where did you practice ILS approaches? Let us know, because it probably right. wasn't at Lindbergh Field.
0: And even if it was, <laughs> it probably was during specific times and in a specific manner.
2: Let us know. Not that anyone ever responds to the let us know, but please let us know.
0: Yeah. yeah even Should I, you ever hear it. Even I'd be really curious. Yeah. So... They kept the first part of that. That first sentence, the first couple of sentences where it blames Flight 182.
2: Because it was yep. their fault.
0: Are identical yep. to the original probable cause. Yes. yes. Right. Are identical to the, the original probable cause. But they did add all the other factors, which were all definitely at fault as well.
3: And and interestingly, the point of putting the air traffic control procedures as part of the probable cause, they also changed the language from where it had been contributing. Originally, it really wasn't very finger pointing at the procedures or air traffic control at all. It was like, uh, yeah, they, they maybe they had the tool. Maybe right. they had the tool. It's literally what it says. They had the capability to do that. And oh, well, they didn't. Right. So they upped that a little bit, realizing after the fact, okay, there were a few things, like not telling them to stay over 4,000 feet, not giving them the extra little details.
0: Right. There's definitely some things could have
3: been done. Yep. So on the safety recommendations. Yeah. This is important stuff. This is really important stuff. Yeah. The very first one, implement a terminal radar service area at Lindbergh Airport. Basically, this is where the commercial aircraft for Lindbergh operate and nothing else does. Yep. And that was a class one urgent action. Yeah. I don't know, it just seems so urgent action. Well, yeah, yeah. hurry up and do that. Planes are crashing. These days, that's the case. Yeah. Review procedures at all airports, which are used regularly by air carrier and general aviation aircraft to determine which other areas require either a terminal control area or a terminal control radar service area and establish the appropriate one. So this kind of comes down to the way that classifications of airspace
0: are. And this is how they determine between a Bravo airspace, a Charlie airspace, a Delta airspace, these kinds of things. So there are commercial airports that have commercial traffic that also get military traffic and general aviation traffic, honestly, more often than the commercial traffic. So they don't need to be a Bravo airspace because they handle these aircraft in a different manner. But when a commercial aircraft is... Being operated into the airspace, it does change the way the traffic is handled at that time.
3: Use visual separation in terminal control areas and terminal radar service areas only when a pilot requests it, except for sequencing on the final approach with radar monitoring. And I was curious... What were the pilots of 182 doing when they were told they were supposed to be watching for this tiny little blip?
2: So, fun fact. (laughs) Okay, so this was not mentioned in the report. This was mentioned only on the Mayday episode, so I cannot confirm its full authenticity, but we're going to go with it. So, rumor has it, according to Mayday, that they were engaged in non-pertinent conversation. However, (laughs) sterile cockpit procedure was not in place at this point. Okay, then that's
1: not an issue.
2: That that doesn't mean it's not an issue.
1: No, I mean, it wasn't against regulation. No, it wasn't
0: against regulation. And yes, that is true. From a legal standpoint... They got away with it, but (laughs) this is
3: one of the justifying flights that made Zero Cockpit a thing. A regulation. Now, that said, the non-pertinent conversation on the CVR was cut off fairly soon after they realized that they were having trouble with figuring out that flight. At that point, and it was mentioned in the report that if there was any conversation, it was ceased at the point that they were trying to find the plane. But before that, they're doing checklists. They're going through all of their stuff. Yeah, it's not a short list and it's even no, of course it's, not. It's even in the the transcript of the CVR that right. yep, they're checking all of this stuff. And then they're also so supposed to be watching for this tiny little blip. So I found this finding interesting that only if the plane requests that visual separation, are they supposed to be doing that?
0: And that's just such a hairy point these days. I mean, it really is. It's just so much more strict about how airplanes operate around one another especially when it comes to commercial aircraft around general aviation, it, there's, there's just pretty clear separation. It's not, it's not simple anymore. It's not basically allowable that these flights would even be operating in a similar airspace. It's not to say that this couldn't happen. It's not to say that they couldn't be operating in the same airspace at the same time in a visual situation, but it's really uncommon, especially for IFR traffic, IFR flight plans.
3: Yeah, well, those are the last two of the safety recommendations. They're both on that because the, se- the very last one is reevaluate the policy with regard to the use of visual separation. So right. the last two points on that really are how are you doing visual separation? Because that didn't right. work here. Right.
0: But piloting 101, see and avoid. See and avoid. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what you're flying, doesn't matter where you are. See and avoid.
2: Really, the PSA pilots should have immediately said, we've lost him.
0: Right. Yeah. And at that time, The right thing to do, honestly. Yeah, to climb. If you lose that traffic. If you don't know,
2: it is best
1: to get the heck out of there and figure it out.
0: Yep. Go around. Yep. Can always go around. If the one thing you know is that the airplane is coming at you from below, the best thing to do is go up, ascend. You know, if you know that they're climbing and you know that they were below you, the best thing you can do at that time is climb.
2: And immediately alert air traffic
3: control. Right. And they should have done so. And they did it. No, they didn't. And they were, when you talk about that conversation, because they were having a conversation, and so they were in a casual state. Yes. Right. Right? They're already in a casual conversation state, so the language they used about trying to talk about the plane that they did or did not see was casual.
2: Literally saying, like, got him, and not identifying yourself to air traffic. You should at least say, Flight 182, got him.
0: Yeah, well, the right thing to say would be 182 has traffic in sight.
2: At least identify yourself. Like the fact that they were going so far as two word transmissions indicates the casual cockpit and is part of why sterile cockpit procedure is now in place. Yes. Because once you have that formal, professional
0: it atmosphere. You in, it puts you in a certain mindset.
2: You're immediately more responsible.
0: Yes, absolutely. So. That sums it up pretty well. I mean, it really was a perfect storm. And it was it always is. Yep, it always is. But in this case, I mean it is there was a lot of things that needed to change. There was a lot of factors that happened here. And it was very I mean, it was all of the media's attention for a little period of time when this happened because it was so
2: It was the worst crash in US history. Well,
0: yeah, and on top of that, there are just incredible pictures and video, and it happened at people's houses. Which is, of course, a PR nightmare for anybody in the aviation industry. You you never want to see that kind of stuff. You don't want an airplane ending up in a residential neighborhood in the suburbs of any anywhere. Nope. It's just bad. It's just bad.
1: Nightmare fuel? Anybody?
0: Yes. But, thankfully, these kinds of things just don't really happen anymore.
1: All right. That was Pacific Southwest Airlines Flight 182. Mm-hmm. Yep. And November 7711 Golf. Yep. Thank you so much for listening, as always. If you haven't checked us out on Patreon, you should do that. As I say every episode. As we're, a
2: shameless plug. We're about to spend another chunk of time here chit-chatting, either about the episode or not. And you could listen to that. It is an option. Or
1: not. <laughs> that
0: is your choice. Totally up to you.
1: Thank you so much for listening, period. Doesn't matter if you're a patron or not. Send us stories,
2: please, and thank you. Thank you, Kaylin, for joining us. Thank you so much.
3: Yeah, thanks. It's a great birthday present to, to be talking <laughs> about. Happy birthday when this actually comes out.
2: Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> this was also local to you, which is crazy. So
2: it's, yeah. It was like a whole bunch of synchronicity all at once. Yes.
0: Yep. So this has been planned for quite some time.
2: Yeah. So stay
1: safe, stay healthy, and we'll catch you all next time.
2: Keep your speed up.